And let me pray as we begin. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you that we can meet together under it and learn from it and worship you. Help us uh, as we listen uh, to worship you in the way that we listen and respond. Help me to be clear and I pray that your word, your truth uh, will be very, very clear and with us by your spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. Christians aren't stupid. We know that people die. And when we die, we really do die. And because we all die, talking about resurrection can seem a bit far-fetched or hard to imagine, or maybe even insensitive. An easy way around that might be to say, well, there is no resurrection. When you die, that's it. That means we can maybe still say that Jesus was a good guy, and people should maybe follow him and live like him. He died and, and maybe he rose, but, but we certainly won't. If there is a resurrection, it's definitely more of a spiritual thing rather than a, a bodily thing. That sounds a bit more reasonable to our, our modern ears. And many people today would do this to, to claim the label Christian but deny a, a physical bodily resurrection. But to believe that is a serious error and is damaging to the Christian faith. We're approaching the end of our sermon series in 1 Corinthians and in chapter 15 tonight we get to the most dangerous matter that is going on in the Corinthian church. We've dealt with problems in worship, in the courts, in home, in relationships. But the most serious error that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians to, to correct them about is an issue of doctrine, an issue of belief. We see that down in verse 12. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There's this group of people within the Corinthian church denying the true belief that people rise from the dead. They have effectively rejected that part of the gospel and are living as if it wasn't true. And as this is a serious issue, the Apostle Paul must talk about it and must correct it. And he does this, firstly, by reminding them of the gospel. He then shows them the, the consequences if there is and isn't a resurrection. And then he urges them to return to the truth. So firstly, tonight, Paul gives the Corinthians a gospel reminder. A gospel reminder. 
in verses 1 to 11. Other issues have been new to the Corinthians. We saw a few weeks ago at the start of chapter 12 that Paul did not want the Corinthians to be uninformed. But here we have a reminder of truth that they already know. We see that in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. This isn't anything new that Paul's going to be writing about. But remember, the Corinthians are so full of themselves, thinking they have it all. Back in chapter 4, we saw that, verse 8. And if you think you have everything you need now, and have reached some sort of peak life or, or top spirituality now, you're not going to be too bothered or interested in resurrection. So this reminder is crucial. Paul continues that he preached this gospel to them, they received it, they believed it, they accepted it, they love Jesus, and they have taken their stand in the gospel. They are saved by the gospel, and Paul wants them to hold firmly to it. Verse 2, otherwise you have believed in vain, which is a little teaser of what's to come. Reminding ourselves of the gospel is such an important part of life. We so easily forget what God has done for us through Jesus that a reminder is always, always needed. This Corinthian church has had issues as we've seen and the gospel is what is needed to unite them and bring them back to truth. If we begin to forget parts of the gospel, then the whole gospel begins to fall apart, making us more prone to error and false teaching. So Paul gives them the basics, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is of first importance. There is nothing more important than what Paul is about to say. Verse 3. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. These few verses formed a, a creed for the early church and this is what the whole Bible points towards. Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the basic gospel structure, the building blocks. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He was raised to life and was seen. His burial confirms his death and his appearances confirm his resurrection. And it's written for us in the scriptures. It's real history. It really happened. And the people that Paul's writing to can, can go and check out the names of, of these people he's given. He lists more in verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, 
though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared also to me, as to one abnormally born. These details are easily given and readily available. This is no myth. But Paul's not trying to convince the Corinthians of the resurrection here. He's just said they've received it and believed it. They've taken their stand on it. There's plenty of evidence for Jesus and his resurrection, which I'd love to speak to you about afterwards. But that's not Paul's main objective here. He's reminding the Corinthians of truth and linking the resurrection to the heart of the gospel. You can't separate the resurrection from the gospel. You take it away and the whole gospel falls apart. It collapses. Paul continues, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Again, Paul's seen the risen Jesus, which makes him an apostle. And through God's grace and kindness to him, he's been able to preach the gospel message. And we see his point again in verse 11. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. There's the gospel reminder and the reminder that the Corinthians have accepted it and believed it. So all of this has now built up to Paul's huge concern, which I said at the start, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You know the gospel. You, you know Jesus rose. Why are you then denying the resurrection of the dead? It makes no sense. To see the importance of the resurrection, Paul's now going to take the Corinthians through what happens if there's no resurrection, which is the second heading tonight. What happens if there's no resurrection? From verse 12 to 19. Quite simply, what happens if there's no resurrection is here for us in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. It's inconsistent to believe that Christ has been raised, but that we won't be. If you believe Christ was raised, you have to believe that we will be raised as well. He was raised by the power of God, and so will we. And using that same reasoning, if you believe that we won't be raised from the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. Because if the dead don't rise, then Christ hasn't risen, because he was dead. Flowing on from that, verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. This couldn't be clearer. 
if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then following him and putting your trust in him and devoting your life to him is a waste of time. Me preaching tonight is useless. Daft's preaching, Matt's preaching, the weekly preaching is useless. It's a waste of time. Our whole faith is useless. Reading the Bible is useless. Opening your homes to Bible studies is useless. Doing any church activity is useless. The big day out would have been a waste of time. Witnessing to your friends is useless. Giving a chunk of your income to the work of the gospel is useless. It's no understatement to say that there is a lot riding on the resurrection. But more than that, more than that, verse 15, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If there's no resurrection, the Apostle Paul's lying. Everyone who's ever told you the gospel was lying to you. And we're lying to everyone that we tell the gospel to. He repeats his point again at the end of verse 15. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. If the dead don't rise, then Christ hasn't risen, because he was dead. And Paul continues to increase the pressure in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's really hammering the point here. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. We are still in our sins. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So Jesus may have died for our sins, but if he did not rise again, then we have no hope of heaven and have not been made right before God. That means that Christians who have died, what Paul calls falling asleep, are lost forever. All, all the hope you had for your Christian friends and family who've died is gone. There really is no hope because, because death really is the end. Christians, therefore, as verse 19 says, are, are to be the most pitied of all people. Do you see how vital the resurrection is? It's essential to the gospel. If you remove the resurrection, then the good news of Jesus comes crumbling right down. If there's no resurrection, preaching is useless. Paul and all Christians are lying, and our faith is useless. And if our faith is useless, we are still in our sins. The dead are lost forever, and we are the most pitied of all people. Jesus, not worth it. I can't leave you there, though. Verse 20, what, what a great verse this is, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. 
As I said, Paul's not trying to convince the Corinthians of the resurrection here. They know that Christ rose. They believe that. Instead, he's trying to reason with them and show them the logic of what must happen because he did rise. We've seen the consequences of what would be if Jesus didn't rise. And now we see the joyful truths because he did. So verse 20 to 28, we see what happens because there is a resurrection. What happens because there is a resurrection. The first thing is that Christ has been raised. He is the first fruits, verse 20, of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus was the first person to die, to rise again, who will never die again. And as he's the first fruits, that shows us there's a massive harvest coming. Loads of people are going to follow. And sleep is a great way of describing death for the Christian. Just as you go to bed at night and wake again in the morning, so will death be. For since death, verse 21, came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. If death came through the first man, Adam, then resurrection life comes through the man, Jesus. Adam's death becomes our death. Christ's resurrection becomes our resurrection. This is because we are in Christ. We are his and he is ours. It's like when your team scores. You may not have scored personally, but you say, we scored. You share in the victory. You share in Christ's resurrection because you are in Christ. This is speaking of Christians here. So when it says in verse 22 that all will be made alive, it doesn't mean everyone is in the whole world. It means all who are in Christ. And if Christ rose, which he did, and you are in him, then that is a sure and certain hope that you too will be raised from the dead. How will this happen? Verse 23 onwards. We get a short overview of, of the end here. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Let's unpack that uh, for a little bit. Christ is raised first. When he returns, those who belong to him are also raised with him. Then at the end of the world, when Jesus has defeated all powers, peoples, institutions that have opposed him, he'll hand that kingdom over to God the Father. And the final enemy of Jesus is death. And that is the last enemy that we shall see destroyed. 
No one else has an answer to death. Try as we might, there are no medical solutions to death. As one disease is amazingly cured, there'll be something else to die of. Our best efforts can only postpone the inevitable. Death is the ultimate enemy. And only Jesus has the power to defeat it. And as a sign of of his incredible humility, Jesus then hands his kingdom, which includes the destruction and end of death, over to God the Father. Now here's the point. Because there's a physical, bodily resurrection, those of you who are trusting in Jesus will be raised and will be part of that death-defeating kingdom. How great is that? It also means the opposite of everything we saw in verses 12 to 19. Preaching is vital. Your faith is worth it. Spreading the gospel is spreading truth because it is the message that has the power to save people from death. You are not still in your sins. The Christian dead will be raised and you will be living with Christ forever in his death-defeating kingdom. And we are the most treasured of all people. What a joy that is. What great news. Christ rose That kingdom is his. And you are in him. Without the resurrection, none of that happens. With the resurrection, there is joy. There is hope. Then as we get to the final few verses of tonight's passage, we see a plea to return to God. From verses 29 to 34. A plea to return to God. Before making this plea, and to add some more emphasis, Paul gives a few further bad results if there's no resurrection. Verse 29. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now this is a strange practice. Baptizing people on behalf uh, of those who've already died. Paul disagrees with it, but he's pointing out the silliness of that practice if there's no resurrection. It has no benefit anyway. But as for Paul himself, there are things that he's going through, things going on in his life, that would also be pointless without a resurrection. We see that in verse 30. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour I face death every day yes just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes what have I gained Paul is willing to face anything and everything for the sake of the gospel There really is no point in him getting imprisoned, flogged, shipwrecked, beaten, if there's no resurrection. There's no point in getting stick for your faith or being a Christian at all if there's no resurrection. The gospel falls apart without it. And without a resurrection, the end of verse 32 says, 
If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this life is all there is, if you want there to be no God and no resurrection, if there really is nothing else, then make this one count. Pour all your energy into having as much fun and pleasure now while you can. Because if you die tomorrow, that's it. Suffering really is pointless. So get what you want now. If there's no resurrection. And how many of us are uh, practically living like that? Are we more concerned about our kids' exam results than about their faith? Are we more concerned with not wanting to be awkward in front of our friends than sharing the gospel with them? Are we more concerned about building a comfortable life for ourselves here now than we are with building God's kingdom? If anything takes the priority that the gospel should have in our lives, then we are misleading and corrupting ourselves. So Paul says, verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Hanging around with those resurrection deniers in the, in the Corinthian church is corrupting their character. If this resurrection denial grew and spread amongst the people, then they'd be destined to fail as a church. They would lose their standing in the gospel. That's the danger. That's why Paul is so eager to plead with them, come back to your senses. Verse 34, there's the plea. Come back to your senses as you ought. Wake up. Sober up. Realize the importance of this. And stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. To continue to deny the resurrection is to sin. The reality of the resurrection is not an issue that Christians can agree to disagree upon. Come back to God. Return to the full message of the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Denying any part of that, especially the resurrection, is to our shame. So let's ask ourselves this. How much are we denying the resurrection by how we live our lives? Are we so comfortable in this life that really we wouldn't want Jesus to come back to today, tomorrow? Or are we joyfully looking forward to that day when all will be made new? Now this rounds off Paul's resurrection reasoning 
So would you hold firmly to this core doctrine? Believe it with all your heart. We cannot separate the resurrection from the gospel. For from it, Jesus was raised from the dead. He has made you right with God. He has taken away the charge of your sins. The resurrection gives us the motive to endure hardships, the hope of being made new, and the joy of being part of God's perfect death-defeating kingdom. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So that's been the groundwork for the reality of the resurrection. Questions of what bodies will we have? How is it all going to happen? What's going to happen to death? We'll come back next week and find out more. But for now, let's pray. And after we've prayed, we're going to sing. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for raising Jesus from the dead. Thank you for that amazing truth. Thank you that we are going to be raised as well. Thank you that death will be like sleep. Help us to live in light of the resurrection. Help us to examine ourselves, to see areas where, where we're not having the gospel at the center of our lives, where we are living as if we are denying the resurrection. Help us to joyfully look forward to that day when Jesus returns and all will be made new. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.